Well, today we resume our study of Daniel. As I've said each week, it's an ancient book, but it really reads like a contemporary handbook for following Jesus in a corrupt culture because its accounts and its demonstrations and declarations indicate that it is possible not only to live in but to engage a corrupt culture without compromising our devotion to God, providing, providing that we understand what it really means to love God and providing we're working at developing our wisdom, our discernment, our courage, and our faith. Now, as we open today, I want to read the words from the front of your bulletin. It's not plagiarism because I wrote them. <laughs> Do you sometimes feel unfairly belittled as a follower of Jesus? Have you ever felt your faith was the cause of being passed over at work or maybe losing your job entirely? Have you ever lost a relationship because of your faith? And in light of such disappointing developments, have you ever felt tempted to compromise your faith? If so, you're not alone. God's people have always been falsely accused of numerous evils and often experience loss and rejection. We may pay a high price for our refusal to worship other gods. And today as we return to our study of the dramatic tale recorded in Daniel 3, I'm going to consider why believers are so often vilified. And I hope it will help you to stand firm, just as Daniel's three friends did many, many centuries ago. Our text this weekend comes from the midpoint of the story in chapter 3. We read it the last time I was teaching. It records the uncompromised response of Daniel's three friends to Nebuchadnezzar's angry ultimatum. He had given them a choice, not much of a choice, either demonstrate ultimate allegiance to the state of Babylon or be sentenced to death by incineration. And then he punctuated his threat with words he would soon have to eat. Our text is Daniel 3, 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I've titled today's teaching, No Other God. Would you say those three words with me as a bold declaration? No other God. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Gracious Heavenly Father, we come now as a community of faith to study your living word, which is the foundation of this community of faith. Everything we are is built upon your word. Our identity, our choices, our loyalties, our values, our priorities. They are informed by, they are empowered by, they are directed by your word. Where we know your word, where we continue in your word, there we experience spiritual liberty. 
So today, Father, as I teach your word, anoint me with your spirit to do that appropriately and accurately. And then help each one of us to apply your word faithfully and diligently. As always, we pray this for several reasons. For your honor through the testimony of your church. For the welfare of your people whom you love. And for the sake of our witness and declaration to a horribly broken and disfigured world. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. And as we listen for God's voice together today, may the Lord be with you. The dramatic story of Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace is the stuff of legends. Even though it's a historic fact, it feels like a story straight out of Marvel or DC because it's chock full of drama and suspense and villain and heroes and courage and some rather spectacular, unbelievable miracles. But more importantly, more importantly, it's chock full of faith lessons and faith principles for those who would walk in uncompromised devotion to God. But those principles don't reveal themselves to the casual reader. They're only recognized by those who visit them repeatedly and sit down and stay for a while. And that's why I'm going to spend a total of four weeks on this one chapter and this one story because there's so much for us inside that story. Now, three weeks ago, I considered the story's opening. And as I did, I addressed a topic of great importance for us where we are in this hour. I entitled it, Refusing a Respectable Idolatry. Now, unfortunately, that was the weekend when, because of ice, we canceled our Sunday services. And so many of you probably didn't hear that teaching. I did do a Facebook posting this week encouraging you to listen. But if you haven't listened yet, please do so, because it's so relevant given our spiritual climate and our political climate. I want to open with a brief review, very brief, and then we'll continue on. Chapter 3 opens with Daniel and his friends in a literal bow or burn situation. It had been brought on by Nebuchadnezzar's insecurity and his addiction to power. Despite the fact that Daniel, speaking for God, assured Nebuchadnezzar that he had been put in his place by God, he still felt uncertain, so he ordered his subjects to indicate their loyalty to him and to the state by kneeling before a statue he had erected, and that statue symbolized the state of Babylon. Historians would see his activity as political expediency, but Daniel's friends recognized it for what it really was. It was blatant idolatry. They knew the very first commandment given to Moses said, you are not to have any other gods. They understood that God's people cannot give ultimate allegiance to anyone or anything other than God or in addition to God. And that includes a nation state, even if it's our own. Now, like numerous tales in scripture, this one reminds us that the nation states of fallen 
human society always tend to drift toward idolatry. And by that I mean they demand things that should only be given to God. And since that type of idolatry is so common in the world, over time it can begin to feel acceptable even to God's people. But no matter how it feels, God and country as a package deal betrays both God and country by virtue of its lies, its idolatries, and its demands. So three weeks ago, I closed by noting that people are often prepared to pay a high spiritual price for the benefits promised to them by human societies and human governments. They're literally willing to put their souls in jeopardy. Now today, as we move forward in the story, I'm going to suggest one reason for that is because people aren't prepared to pay the high price for not buying into the promises of societies and governments. Daniel's friends learned that the world often demands a very high price from those who refuse to do things its way. Now it's safe to assume, even though the text doesn't tell us, that many of Nebuchadnezzar's astrologers and wise men and experts were still smarting from the fact that Daniel with the vision given to him by God, had shown them to be a bunch of bogus imposters. And worse, they had been reduced to watching in silent, embarrassing, and simmering envy as a Jewish exile was appointed to their royal court. He became an insider. And as they watched, his three exiled Jewish friends were appointed to administer the affairs of state of Babylon. And the sight of exiled immigrants ruling over native Chaldeans was more than they could stomach. So when Daniel's three friends didn't kneel before the symbol of loyalty to the state, they saw their chance for payback, and they seized it. So they rushed into Nebuchadnezzar's presence, and after some empty flattery, they quickly snitched on Daniel's three friends, charging them with two things, treason and failure to serve the king's gods. Now, the first charge was totally bogus, but the second was accurate. And the attack reminds us that those who opt for unbelief or false belief will always bring accusations against God's people. They always have. Scripture indicates they always will, right up until the moment of Jesus' return. Now, I'd like to suggest there are three fundamental reasons why the world vilifies those who follow Jesus. And I want you to notice, none of them has anything to do with you. First of all, people mock what they don't understand. And the unbelieving cannot understand devotion to God. It lies totally outside their frame of reference. That's why 1 Corinthians 2 says, the natural person who hasn't been born again cannot understand 
the things of God. It says to them, God's truth will be foolishness because God's truth is only discerned by those who are spiritual and the biblical definition of being spiritual means your spirit has been brought to life by the new birth as a result of your faith in Christ. So understanding always comes on the backside of faith. The world cannot understand the things of God and people mock what they don't understand. Second, believers' devotion to God feels like a denunciation of other devotions because in point of fact, it is. When we take a firm, no other God's stance, those who have heavily invested in other gods feel like their beliefs and their devotion are being attacked. So what do they do? They counter attack. The third reason is the most fundamental reason of the three. The third reason why people bring accusations against God's people lies in the fact that the lives of those who are outside of faith are largely governed and controlled by God's foremost enemy, Satan. And according to Revelations 12, Satan specializes in two things, deceiving the unbelieving and accusing those who believe. He brings accusations against God's people. In Revelations 12, God called him the accuser of the saints and said that he accuses them night and day and day and night. And who does he use to accuse them? He uses those whom he has deceived. So, unless you have compromised your faith and have been acting very badly, when you find yourself the target of ugly accusations like bigger, bigot, hater, intolerant, uneducated, naive, fool, or worse. It will help you to stand firm if you'll remember that the world's accusations against God's people are ultimately accusations against God himself. They hate you because according to scripture, they hate God. You say, that's a strong word. Well, that's how God described it. He said, you either love me or you hate me. You're either with me or you're my enemy. There is no spiritual Switzerland. There is no neutral ground. So when you're accused, when you're vilified, remember, it's not personal. really doesn't have anything to do with you unless, again, you've been acting quite badly. Then that's a different topic. And remember one other thing. When you're vilified, you're in good company. God's people have been vilified from Genesis, and they'll be vilified till Jesus returns. Now, a couple of things I want you to note. First of all, Daniel's friends didn't invite or seek confrontation and persecution. They weren't suffering from some martyr complex. People who are suffering from a martyr complex aren't following Jesus very closely because Jesus didn't seek persecution. Jesus didn't seek the cross. Jesus endured it for your sake and for mine. But he didn't have a martyr complex. He was moving in the love of God. He only endured the cross because it was an absolute necessity. 
And it's also too important to recognize that the attacks against them came unexpected. They have been quietly serving the empire with excellence, administering the affairs of state, and this whole episode just came out of left field. And it's a reminder to us that Jesus' followers can never afford to relax because the world we live in is in rebellion against God. We are living in the midst of the rebellion against our Creator and our Lord. And because of that, your situation can change as quickly as you can say incinerator. Israel learned that the hard way when a new Pharaoh came into power who didn't know Joseph, who didn't have a relationship with Joseph, Joseph, and who immediately afflicted the people of God. David learned it the hard way when in a matter of hours he went from being the favored musician of the court to being the target of Saul's spear and his paranoia. Jesus didn't have to learn that. He knew when he entered Jerusalem that the same crowds that were cheering for his arrival and shouting Hosanna would in a few hours be shouting crucify him, crucify him, and give us Barabbas. And our nation, which was founded in part by people escaping religious intolerance, has become increasingly intolerant of religion. Things can change in a moment when you're living in rebel territory. Now, although he was enraged, Nebuchadnezzar didn't immediately order the death of Daniel's three friends. Got a hunch. One reason was they had been doing so well in his affairs of state. He didn't want to lose them. So he suggested what appeared to be a logical, common sense, fairly innocent compromise. Guys, <laughs> I'm not asking you here to deny this Jehovah God you worship. You don't have to do that. I've never made you do that before. All I need you to do is pledge your ultimate allegiance to my reign and to this kingdom of Babylon. After all, we've been good to you. All I'm asking you to do is salute this national symbol. Guys, think of it. One quick bow, and it's all over. One little bow, and you can return to your lives and the worship of your Jehovah God and all your unique convictions. Just one little bow. What's the big deal? But the temptation to compromise always appears logical and rather harmless. But it's neither one. And they knew that. So they refused. And in so doing, they highlighted the difference between two things that butt heads every day in our culture biblical faith, and religious pluralism. Now, religious pluralism, which is very much in vogue, will tolerate anything except for one thing. It won't tolerate the person who insists there is only one true God and that Jesus is the only way. When it encounters that confession, it stokes the fires of the furnace. 
And that's why, as believers in a religiously pluralistic culture, we are increasingly vilified. That explains why in Hinduism, that opens its arms wide for countless gods. In Hinduism, if you say, Jesus is Lord and the only way, they quickly draw a line in the sand, stoke the fires, and in many places of India, burn churches to the ground. You see, in biblical faith, truth is revealed by God. In religious pluralism, truth is defined by human choices. Big difference. And that's why a culture that largely rejects the worship of God will worship human choice as if it is God as if human choice is the ultimate determiner of all things and the highest value. Choice becomes the final word. Not revelation, not scripture, not spirit, but choice becomes the final word in matters of sexuality, gender, identity, morality, religion, education, and even in determining who gets to live and who has to die. Rather than submitting their will to the only one who is good, our culture refuses submission to God as an expression of what they believe is the ultimate good, human will and human choice. That's why pro-choice is not just a fitting term for one side of the abortion debate, it is an apt description of our entire Western American culture. We have elevated human choice above God. We have problems accepting the existence and the governance of God, but as a culture, we have no problem acting as if we are God. This culture has fallen prey to the oldest lie in Scripture and in human history. You, too, shall be equals with God. You can be God. So we don't worship God. We worship our choices. So if the facts don't align with our choice, makes no difference. Our choice is sovereign. Now, in a moment, I'm going to put our story on pause again until next weekend. But first, I want to point out an additional takeaway by Daniel's friend's refusal to compromise. In our current climate of intolerance for biblical faith, we can easily be tempted to try to stem the tide of the accusations and even be tempted to try to win the hearts of the unbelieving by making compromises in matters of biblical doctrines like creation, human sexuality, gender, the lostness of humanity, the final judgment, the exclusivity of Jesus, the need of Jesus, the fate of those who embrace false religions, and other core biblical doctrines. And a number of churches sadly have done that. They have abandoned and compromised all of those things and reduced the Christian faith to little more than there is a God, he likes you, and he wants you to be nice to other people. 
But where that has been done, it has not led to increasing favor and it has not led to increasing influence. It has led to spiritual death and diminishing respect. Because when you compromise, here's what the world hears you saying. We've been wrong. And when you say to the world, we've been wrong in all these things we've been preaching and teaching, they'll applaud you. But they're not applauding the discovery of truth. They're applauding your surrender to the culture. They're celebrating the fact that you've raised the white flag and you have given up. You see, those who compromise biblical faith betray God. And by doing so, they invite others to join them. Rather than influencing people towards repentance and faith in God, we influence people towards rejecting God and being our own moral governance. Can I suggest in light of this story that rather than being concerned about how those who don't know Jesus feel about you at this moment, be more concerned about how they will feel at the judgment. We get so concerned about how an unbeliever might feel about us now that we forget how they're going to feel when they stand before God in judgment. And if they stand before God in judgment and he says, I put in your path people who held to my truth, who didn't compromise my truth, who showed you my truth. Well, then they'll know that they're there because of their rejection of truth. But boy, if God says, you know, I put people in your path so that you wouldn't be in this fix today, unfortunately, the people I put there compromised. If you're one of those who compromised, how might you feel in that moment? This culture is all about people's feelings. All right, let's think in terms of how they'll feel when they stand before God. And if you're concerned about that, don't compromise the one truth that will prepare them for that moment and set their spirits free. I said a few weeks ago that what we choose to believe determines what we refuse. Earlier in Daniel, we watched as Daniel and his friends refused to eat at the king's table. When they did that, they were not under the threat of death. So that was sort of low-level refusal to compromise. Now we find them refusing to kneel with the guarantee of death in front of them and they took their firm stand. And it reminds us that if we choose devotion when the temptation level is lower, we'll be able to stand firm when the temptation level is at its highest. Jesus put it this way, if you are faithful in small things, I'll be able to trust you in big ones. If you don't compromise 
simply because somebody says they don't like you anymore, then I'll be able to trust you when the stakes are much, much higher. And you'll be prepared to deal with things when the stakes are higher. This is why the enemy wants you to compromise in little things in your life. Little innocent things like filing your taxes. what you watch on that computer screen. Spending more time in social media than you've ever spent in the Bible. Writing snarky comments on Facebook instead of commenting to God in prayer about somebody's need. Little, seemingly innocent compromises. And if you embrace them, when the day comes when we might be in a bow or burn situation, you might struggle to stand. Remember, we tend to live in the moment, but wise people take the big picture. Every decision you'll make this week is preparing you for some day coming when you've got to face a bow or burn situation. And how you'll do in that hour depends on how you're doing today. If we choose devotion when the temptation is lower, we'll be able to stand when it's at its highest, and we'll be able to say, for me, no other gods. I'm not ashamed that I know Jesus. I'm grieved that many don't. <laughs> but... I'll, I'll never be ashamed that Jesus was willing to join his name to a loser like me. Let's pray together. And as we're praying, let me ask, have you ever come to the place where you have chosen the true and living God who revealed himself not only in the word but in Jesus, who validated his claims through the resurrection? Have you made him your God? Oh, he's your creator, but have you made him your father? If you haven't, he's eager to do that. And if you'll call upon him in the quietness of your heart and ask him to bring your soul to life and forgive your sin and be your savior, he'll rush in and do that and everything will be different. Father, To be your follower in this world is to be accused, mocked, ridiculed, vilified. In this culture, it's intensified. As it intensifies, let our devotion intensify. Help us to be people who refuse to compromise, who stand firm, knowing that the world's only hope lies in men and women who preserve, protect, and proclaim the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is Lord, and only in him is their life. Lord, as the fires are being stoked, help us to stand firm. In Jesus' name, amen.